You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Hi everyone, I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get Our Way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Caroline Hyde and Ed Ludlow. at Bloomberg's World Headquarters in New York. And I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up, the U.S. clamps down on China's chip access with sweeping updates to export controls. We'll discuss the impact on the semiconductor industry. Plus, we'll bring you the latest updates from the trial of Sam Bankman-Fried as the third member of his inner circle testifies against him. And we'll continue our conversation on the technology ecosystem right here in the Big Apple. New York Tech Week continues. But first, let's check in on these markets. And actually, tech, the laggard of choice at the moment today, Ed. We're seeing the Nasdaq 100, I'm focusing on, down about a tenth of a percent. Yes, we know that stocks sometimes struggle in the face of rising bond yields. But actually, we saw some other areas catch a bid. Bank of America coming out with some earnings that beat, although gold and Sachs as well, and worse than had been anticipated in terms of its own profitability targets. But looking at 10-year yield pushing up once again to about 2,007 highs. So we're anticipating the strong data that we've just seen out of the US, whether, of course, overall the macro picture looks a little bit better, and what ultimately that means for the Federal Reserve. I think, unfortunately, we've just moved on a gear. We're looking at crane shares. I'm looking at what's happening overall in the tech space in China. We've got the Belt and Road Initiative, the catch-up meetings there happening with world leaders, but also China, of course, itself trying to stimulate its economy while the U.S. tries to impede some of its technological know-how. We're looking at it down some three-quarters of percent. I know you're going to dig into that one, Ed. Let's look at some of the individual areas of risk assets that we like to focus on in tech, though. I want to focus on what's happening in Bitcoin because we have had, once again, a wild ride. Is Larry Fink on the side of Bitcoin? Certainly, he sees some sort of move to maybe even a solace, a place of refuge, an area to be seen as safety. That's certainly what seemed to be being talked about by the head of BlackRock. And overall, we're seeing it just up about a quarter percent as we see flip-flopping around that all-important 28,000 level. Ed. There's a lot in the news cycle that's pushing individual stocks. Lucid, the EV maker, saw its production drop 30% quarter on quarter, really casting doubt about its full-year production targets for high-end EVs. That stock down almost 4%. Apple down 6 tenths of 1%. It's out with a new Apple Pencil. Go out onto Apple's website and see the details. Not doing much to support the stock. There is some hangover from that counterpoint research that came out 24 hours ago showing that early sales of iPhone 15 in China are not doing as well 
relative to iPhone 14 last year. And Amazon up down four tenths of one percent. Really strong retail sales data here in the US for the month of September. Not doing much to support e-commerce related stocks. The top story and the top mover is Nvidia. A really notable move downwards after the US confirmed it is expanding export curbs relating to chip technology. That move now 3.5%. It had been at 1.7% on track for its biggest drop since early May. That said, you know, despite shedding 60 to 70 billion dollars of market cap, this is still a 1.1 trillion dollar stock. All about the A800 and H800, the specific China chips that it was exporting. Let's get the details out of DC with Bloomberg's Mackenzie Hawkins. And Mackenzie, we knew this was coming. Bloomberg had reported it. But how is this impacting NVIDIA specifically? So what we saw today is the Biden administration released updated regulations on these sweeping export controls that they imposed on China last year. And in response to last year's curbs, NVIDIA designed chips specifically for the Chinese market that went right up to the threshold that the administration set. And now the administration has tightened that threshold to capture the chips that NVIDIA designed for China, meaning that they can't sell those chips there without a license. And so their stock took hit this morning. It wasn't just NVIDIA that was being focused on from a business model perspective. Mackenzie, talk us through some of the AI companies that are also being targeted in China. Sure. So in addition to tightening the threshold for graphics chips like NVIDIA's, you also saw the Biden administration add two AI firms that are Chinese AI startups to the entity list, which basically means overseas companies have to get a license to export um, and trade with those firms. Um, and, you know, one of those companies have said, we're going to appeal that decision. We strongly disagree. Um, Chinese foreign minister said yesterday that, you know, we don't want the U.S. to weaponize trade issues. Um, but this is the Biden administration clamping down on what they see as rapid advancement in China's chip industry. Um, and beyond that, we also have to look at the equipment makers because it's not just the actual manufacturer of chips, but also the highly expensive and technical equipment required to make them. And so one of the key players there is Dutch company ASML. And they've said that the restrictions, the new restrictions that were announced this morning are going to impact some of their China facilities as well. Uh, we're just showing on the screen Mackenzie SML's response to this. These export control measures will likely have an impact on the regional split of our system sales in the medium to long term. What was interesting about this, the whole point of codifying and updating these curbs was to address the loopholes and gray areas from last October. And yet, I think I'm right in saying that officials on the US side, Mackenzie, didn't specifically explain which chip making equipment was going to be caught by the expanded controls. So they released the text of the rules this morning and, you know, companies, industry analysts, trade organizations are rapidly going through that text to identify which specific, which specific pieces of equipment are affected. And so in ASML's case, you'd be looking specifically at less advanced, what are called DUV machines, which are lithography machines that actually help you, you know, cut wafer, cut ships into a semiconductor wafer. Um, and the U.S. has to coordinate with the Netherlands on that policy because ASML is a Dutch company. It's one of the most valuable companies in Europe. And one of the main loopholes of the initial export controls announced last October was that Washington went ahead, but they hadn't yet gotten Amsterdam and Tokyo on board, where some of the main chip equipment makers are located. A great global perspective, Mackenzie Hawkins. We thank you so much for jumping on that news of day. Meanwhile, no, we're going to stay over in Washington and, and talk globally as well, because President Biden is set to travel to Israel tomorrow. And any moment now, of course, the U.S. House itself will hold a vote on electing a 
new speaker. It is busy down there. Blue Most Kaylee Lines is always all across this. First and foremost, to the president and the anticipated trip at the moment. How are we anticipating this to be sort of taken by the rest of the administration and indeed by the Republicans? Well, of course, this is something that President Biden is doing at the invitation of Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. It's going to be a literal physical manifestation of the U.S.'s support for Israel, a show of real solidarity. And it's a trip that the president is making at great personal risk. He is heading into an active war zone. But there's a number of things that he is going to be trying to achieve. In addition to showing support for Israel and talking with the Israelis, Benjamin, Prime Minister, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, the Prime Minister, and other leaders about what it is they need in terms of aid. He also goes there with the knowledge that there is several Americans that are understood to be hostages of Hamas. He would like to see them uh, rescued as we are on the cusp, it seems, of an Israeli ground invasion in Gaza and also likely is going to be bringing with him a message of restraint, concern for the innocent Palestinian civilians in Gaza, making sure that while the U.S. says Israel does have a right to go after Hamas, that they are taking every measure they can uh, to protect civilian and innocent lives. And then, of course, there is just kind of the broader deterrent effect of him being there. They do not want this crisis to expand beyond just Israel and Gaza. It is a warning to other countries like Iran, for example, other groups like Hezbollah, not to widen this conflict any further. And that's also why we're seeing the president traveling to Jordan at, after he is in Israel to meet with the leaders of Egypt and the Palestinian Authority, in addition to King Abdullah. The administration's attentions on the, on the Middle East, Kaylee, but also at home. We have this House vote on, on the speakership. What are we expecting mm. to happen imminently? Well, it, it is literally going to take place any minute. The House convened at noon, and we're going to see if Jim Jordan has the numbers. He, of course, is the speaker-designate of the Republican conference, but when he was given that on Friday, and we're seeing what's happening here uh, in the House underway, it's just not clear that he is going to have the votes that he needs. 217 is the magic number. He can only afford to lose four votes. There were more than 50 who on Friday suggested they would not vote for him on the floor, but he's been whittling away at those numbers uh, over time. He had a number of key flips, uh, the likes of Mike Rogers, Ken Calvert, and Wagner, all of these kind of defense appropriations talks that he was able to bring onto his side. But there's still a handful of Republicans, Carlos Jimenez, Mike Lawler, Mike Kelly, Mario Diaz-Balart, uh, who, who still have said that they will vote no for him. So it's going to be a matter of whether he can actually get there on the first ballot. And if not, if he can do it on any ballot, he's going to have to try to bring more people onto his side, knowing, of course, that we are working with a number of clocks here, Israeli aid, uh, the need to give funding to Israel with congressional approval on the one hand, but also trying to avoid a government shutdown come November 17th on the other. And I think to that point, you sort of shift the conversation back from the imminency of this vote on the House and also what that does mean for well, the current direction of travel with Israel at the moment. Just take us to what we know in terms of the latest, the thinking certainly from Anthony Blinken as well. Well, obviously, there is bipartisan support, Caroline, for giving Israel what it needs and for Congress really passing that aid if it needs to, knowing there is existing authorities that the Biden administration already has money that has already been uh, appropriated resources they can give to Israel without congressional approval. But if there is something that requires congressional uh, approval, like supplemental funding requests, that's where it's going to get tricky if we still have no Speaker of the House. And keep in mind that it's not just Israel funding the administration is pushing for and trying to secure. It's other 
others as well, including funding for Ukraine, which is a much more difficult topic among Republicans, specifically in the House of Representatives. And there's been growing talks here in Washington about the idea that Israel and Ukraine funding could be tied together. But that is something that Jim Jordan, if he does indeed get the speaker's gavel, could have a hard time getting through the House, knowing there are so many members of his party that are opposed to any additional funding going to Ukraine. So it's going to be a thorny subject to navigate if Ukraine and Israel do get uh, lumped together, even though there is that support there for Israel. Kaylee Lines, thank you. Across all of the moving parts that are currently occurring in Washington. And, and I mean, we've been talking about Israel, of course, from the politics, from the conflict. But at the moment, also the implications within technology. And actually, there's some notable news out that we understand Israel is in talks with Elon Musk's SpaceX, right, to set up a Starlink satellite network to, to bolster communications. Yeah, this is an announcement from Israel's communications ministry. It's important to note, if you go on the Starlink website and look at the map of coverage, Starlink is not currently available in Israel or indeed in the Gaza Strip or the West Bank. We have not heard from SpaceX or received comment from them on this story, but the idea that the Israelis are outlining is it will keep those towns on the front line with a reliable internet connection uh, as this war with Hamas continues. The other story that we're continuing to follow related to the Israel-Hamas war, why combinators Gary Tan, Sequoia Capital's Ravi Gupta and several other prominent venture capitalists have cancelled plans to attend Web Summit, the biggest technology conference in Europe. And it follows comments by the conference's CEO that slammed Western support for Israel after the Hamas attacks. And Caroline, important to note that this morning, Paddy Cosgrave, the CEO of Web Summit, through a blog post and issued an apology for those original comments that he'd made, I think, on X. Yeah, he certainly did more back from some of his initial viewpoints and I think it was notable that they do say that what some VCs have stepped back also some areas the European venture capitalists as well from attending the event but I think actually Web Summit came out and said actually Monday had a lot of people signing up to attend the event the busiest Monday that they'd had in terms of attendance registrations and indeed some VCs had signed up to attend as well but overall this really does just show that people are are having to navigate really how they communicate with indeed their own customer base, how they communicate with the broader world on X at the moment, as indeed Paddy Cosgrove himself is having to do. Yeah, I think he posted onto that platform X saying he's going to be taking a time out from the platform where he'd originally made his views known. Nishad Singh, now he's the former director of engineering at FTX, is facing cross-examination at the Sam Bankman-Fried trial today. Over the course of earlier questioning, Singh said that he was intimidated by Bankman-Fried and at times humiliated by him. Let's bring in Hannah Miller for more on really the way in which these testimonies are unfolding. And at the moment, it really feels as this was a pretty rocky relationship, certainly towards the end of FTX's, well, fallout, it would seem. 100%. Yeah, we're getting an inside look at what happened in FTX during the collapse, uh, both in the offices and in the $30 million penthouse that Sam Bankman-Fried shared with his close friends and executives. Hannah, one interesting piece, particularly from sort of the prosecution standpoint, is what Nishad Singh is saying about when he learned about the financial difficulties that FTX was in. What did we learn in the courtroom? We know that it was an extremely stressful situation for him, that this was really devastating. Um, he 
we know he, did, he made a plea deal pretty early on. Uh, he did flip early on Bankman-Fried. Um, so we also know that he had a close personal relationship with Sam Bankman-Fried's younger brother. You know, this was more than professional. This was a personal connection between the two. What's interesting to me is the timing of this, that in his testimony, Singh says he only learned about the $8 billion hole in the company's balance sheet two months before everything fell apart. Where are we at in this trial? You know, it's hard as a reporter, and I've been in those courtrooms, I know, to kind of weigh the evidence, but, but are we near the end of the process, at least, of what we expect to come? Yeah, so our latest updated estimate for the verdict is around November 8th. But again, this is an evolving situation. Things can change. You know, we do have that potential witness list, but that could be adjusted. Uh, there are still many colorful characters and people close to Sam Bankman-Fried who are set to testify. And I think what we're also getting is a story of, it seems as though whether the prosecution is trying to identify so-called flashiness, excess done by Sam Bankman-Fried, and it feels as though perhaps we're hearing from seeing some corroboration of that, but he, he's saying that Sam Bankman-Fried's approach to spending on investments in real estate and celebrity endorsements was excessive. But also just the fact that they were kind of left out of the loop on many of these deals until after the fact. Yeah, so a lot of what the prosecution has been doing has been showing, you know, the luxe lifestyle that Sam Bankman-Fried and the other FTX executives pursued. Meanwhile, the defense has tried arguing that, you know, Sam Bankman-Fried was your regular math nerd, uh, that he didn't like this life of luxury. But really, we've seen with Singh's testimony about living in this $30 million penthouse in the Bahamas that really all of these executives got to enjoy <laughs> a life of riches. All right, Bloomberg's Helen Miller, terrific up-to-the-minute reporting here in SF. Thank you very much. Let's keep the conversation going with Sandra Rowe, CEO of the Global Blockchain Business Council, a Swiss-based nonprofit with more than 500 institutional members. And essentially, you're dedicated to furthering adoption of blockchain technology, which this trial kind of puts a macro spotlight on. It's kind of an interesting real-time play on the rule of law, right? We are seeing that happen in this country. As you sit there representing your industry, what do you think the outcome will mean for your industry? So fraud is fraud. And it, the trial underscores the importance of enforcement being able to do its job to weed out uh, financial crimes. And as the indictment, um, if it's proven that in this trial that uh, financial crimes have been committed, the U.S. is based on rule of law, and that is a good thing. And we will see the outcome of that shortly, it seems. And for the industry, I will say this. Less hype, less noise, less bad actors, the better for the good innovators and uh, those who are trying to do the right thing which includes responsible innovation and consumer protection going hand in hand. Talking of noise, though, there was a bit of noise surrounding, well, future sign-offs of spot ETFs. Yesterday, it made for a little bit of volatility in the OG of the crypto world that is Bitcoin because there was some expectation that the SEC might sign off on BlackRock's ETF proposal. And, of course, that was dampened down by the SEC itself saying, you know, don't believe everything on the Internet. But, Sandra, how much are you navigating this current noise and expectation in the market? So, with the organization that we have, which has Fortune 500s across to layer one blockchains, to crypto firms, to startups, we have to navigate a world where we focus on 
what is the problem people are solving for? How is te this technology actually useful for society? And frankly, what is the positive impact to society? So for us, it's really about getting down to bread and butter, what real world problems are being solved for, and how can these technology tools be used for furthering uh, solutions that are positive impact? Cassandra, in parallel, we have this sort of industry-defining trial that will have ramifications for your industry. And we also wait to learn about approval, right, for products that expand uh, digital asset reach. Uh, give us your sort of state of the industry health check right now. When all of you and all of your members gather, are these positive conversations you're having, or are you all down in the doldrums right now about the health of your industry? So as you can imagine, with a group as large as ours, one size does not fit all. Uh, the focus is really widening the aperture of discussion from our point of view, which is every industry sector is likely to be affected by things going digital. And in a world where everything is going digital, including money and financial products, what does that mean and what are the implications for each industry sector? Whether we're talking about supply chain, to digital identity, to wallets, and ultimately investing. Do you think ultimately that the, amid all the noise, you are able to show real world applications that do problem solve? You sit on so many boards. I'm looking how you're on the World Economic Forum's digital currency governance. You're also on Filecoins, for example, but you're doing things within the EU public funds and new green economy. What problems need to be resonated to be solved here for basically crypto and decentralized finance to, to sort of win hearts and minds a little bit more? I think it's getting back to basics. Are you actually helping to solve real world problems? I'll give one example of a project we have going on right now with the UN World Food Program. Billions of dollars of donor funds go into the system across the development world. And there's very little visibility around making sure that there is a 360 degree accountability on the fact that wherever it was supposed to go, it actually went to that city or village or community. And I think we need to think about how we design systems to allow for that accountability. It is not about being big brother. There needs to be human rights and consumer protection built into design. But ultimately, we need to think about how we affect positive transparency, mm. build trust. Sandra Rowe, great to have some time with you. CEO of the Global Blockchain Business Council. We thank you so much. From New York and San Francisco, this is Bloomberg Technology. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop. Customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. 
Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. All right, time for Talking Tech. First up, TSMC is axing plans to build an advanced chip plant in North Taiwan. The pullback comes after reports of growing local protests. And Alibaba and Tencent participated in a $300 million round for AI startup Baichu on one of the more prominent startups hoping to compete with the likes of Microsoft and OpenAI. Plus, Apple CEO Tim Cook made a special appearance at a Tencent gaming tournament in China. This comes amid reports of slower-than-expected sales of the iPhone 15 and increased competition from China's Huawei. Caroline. Meanwhile, Ed, we're going to be talking about, well, tech. We're right here in the city of New York. It's Tech Weeks upon us. We're going to sit down with some of the participants from Everywhere Ventures. That's next. Watching shares, meanwhile, of Amazon, Jeff Bezos regains his spot as second richest person in the world, passing LVMH CEO Bernard Arnault, of course. We're trading flat on the day. He's now worth $156 billion. This is Bloomberg. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Caroline Hyde in New York. I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. A quick check on the markets, because in the last few minutes, literally, the Nasdaq 100 has turned positive, up just a tenth of 1%. We got stronger than expected retail data in the month of September, the logic the market's following is that strong economic data raises bets on the Fed holding interest rates higher for longer. And we all know the story, what higher rates mean for the technology sector. Looking at the Nasdaq 100, around 70 names in the green, still around 30 in the red. We continue to track that. Of course, one big mover to the downside is NVIDIA after the US expanded curbs on chip technology exports. And that specifically impacted NVIDIA. But names moving to the upside, Meta, Adobe, Tesla, all from a points perspective, moving the Nasdaq 100 higher. A lot of Fed speak this week, and then we get China GDP Wednesday. We've got a lot to think about, Cara. We do. And actually, there's also the micro to think about if you're living right here in New York City at the moment, because Tech Week's actually upon us, officially underway, and the industry is gathering for so many hundreds of events and panels all week long. To kick off this event, we sat down with members of A16Z to hear about why Andreessen and Horowitz in New York remains an important tech hub. I've always believed that opportunities live between fields of expertise, and I really enjoy exploring those intersections. And I think it really is a metaphor for New York City, because technology has a tendency of cutting across 
industries, and I think the companies that really represent New York best are those that really live at the intersection between technology and many of the large incumbent industries that you know exist here in New York, whether that's media, advertising, fashion, or financial services. Let's get more thoughts from the New York tech scene and ecosystem in Evolve itself. Jenny Fielding's here with us, managing partner at Everywhere Ventures. And what's so fascinating is your whole MO of Everywhere Ventures is that technology is everywhere. Founders are everywhere. But you have based yourself here in New York and, and you've been growing tech businesses since 2007 here. How has it changed from your perspective? Yeah, well, um, I'm a born and raised New Yorker. And so when I set out to start my first tech company in 2007, everyone said to me, this is a terrible place to you know, start a, a software company. And I looked around and I said, really? There's incredible talent here. We have some of the best engineering schools. We have capital. Maybe we don't venture capital, but we have Wall Street, we have real estate, we have every multinational is here. And so I dug in my heels and I built my company here while everyone really was heading out west. Now, it's taken a long time for our ecosystem to develop, but it really is such a thriving ecosystem. Um, but it's taken time from 2007 to now, more than 15 years to get where we are. It is now, I think, in terms of number of venture capital deals being signed, it's like second just behind San Francisco and, and the and the Bay Area. What has been sort of a real catalyst? We know that there has been the data dogs, the MongoDBs, the exits that re-put money back into New York where they were grown. Has that particularly helped or has that carved too much of a niche in, in data in particular? Yeah, I mean, it's been really amazing to see how the IPOs have, you know, catalyzed our ecosystem. So, for example, those founders, they make a bunch of money and not just the founders. Think about the founding teams. And what do they do? Sure, maybe they buy a nice house, but they put it right back into the startup ecosystem. We see that every day. What's interesting about our fund is we raise all of our capital from LPs who are all founders and operators. So while most people are investing or raising from institutions, we're raising from our community. And so that's a real kind of new ethos here. We've seen it in the Bay Area for many generations, and now it's really starting to come here. We call it this kind of founder flywheel. Jenny, what's the New York City founder playbook? You know, the story in Silicon Valley and San Francisco is you've gone to Stanford or Berkeley, you may drop out, but you can find yourself a garage or a space, get capital from VCs here and grow quite quickly. Explain to me what's happening in real terms on the ground in New York City, in the wider New York area. Yeah, well, again, I really you know, want to stress this word ecosystem. So it's not just about what the venture capitalists are doing, but what about the universities? So I am an adjunct professor at both Cornell Tech and Columbia University who have incredible programs that are supporting entrepreneurship, that are encouraging students to not just go to the traditional places. Um, when I was a student, everyone went to Goldman and JP Morgan and McKinsey. Now, we're encouraging students to you know, come out and start companies. It's a very different culture here in New York than it was when I started, and it's quite exciting. Is what we're seeing happen in AI here on the West Coast happening in New York? There are companies being founded in this city every day. The pitch book data shows 50% of the capital going to San Francisco-based startups. But is there still some energy being created by AI in New York? 
Listen, again, getting back to universities, we have incredible labs here across our universities, and that's spawning some of the best technologists, um, up-and-coming technologists. I just hosted a pre-seed founder breakfast with AWS, and I would say 75% of the founders there pitched me an AI startup or AI-powered. So wow. it is happening here. Now, it is true that some of the you know, larger infrastructure plays, whether it's OpenAI or Microsoft or Google, are on the West Coast, but I think we have a real opportunity opportunity to catch up. What's the state, what's the city doing to help perpetuate this? Because some would say, oh, New York's actually pushing back against Airbnb. It's looking at regulating AI, at least in the application of, of jobs and hiring. How are they managing to do that balancing act? Yeah, so it's a, it's a great question. Um, I happen to chair the advisory board of New York Ventures. So that is the venture fund for the state of New York. And they have just announced a $100 million fund to invest in emerging managers. So these are new managers who are out there supporting the next generation of entrepreneurs. And so they're putting money into to these new innovators who are then, again, investing in companies in New York. So I think the state is um, really across the state um, you know, making a big impact. I just came from a competition called 43 North mm -hmm. um, up in Buffalo, where they just gave out $5 million to uh, five companies that are moving to Buffalo starting their uh, new companies, many actually in AI. So we're excited to see um, all of the catalyzing across the, um, the state. Yeah, so it is a state element. What's interesting, Tech, Tech NYC, who's sort of helping galvanize this week alongside Andreessen Horowitz, and they're like, they've got some interesting data when it comes to the breakdown of founders. I'm interested whether or not it's anecdotal. It seems to be from the data Tech NYC is showing is that actually founders happen to be more diverse here in New York. That's, of course, a reflection of what the city looks like, the people it makes up. But is it diverse enough? Are you seeing improvements in that respect? I'm hosting a female founder lunch on Friday. We had a thousand women apply. Unfortunately, we have 50 spots for lunch, but it is absolutely incredible. You know what we're seeing here in New York. We're seeing incredible diversity um, across all you know walks of life, and we're really excited about it. I don't think it's just talk. I think you know women are coming out of incredible um, universities and companies, and you know there's capital there for them. Jenny, what your industry colleagues at Andreessen Horowitz outlined for us on yesterday's show was New York being good at applying technology to mature industries like finance, in other words, fintech, but also biotech. Are there any examples where you've experienced that, technology offering a solution for a legacy or long-standing industry? Yeah, I mean, we're, um, those are two of our large areas, um, both fintech, healthcare. I think the other one that we're focused on is future of work and automation. And so oftentimes this plays out in what we call vertical SaaS. So these are antiquated industries, whether it's around supply chain and the like, where new technologies, AI, are coming in to make everything more efficient. So um, the areas, again, that we focus on, fintech um, that you spoke to David about yesterday, healthcare, um, and future of work automation. These are you know, critical to the city, and these are old, antiquated industries that are being updated through tech. Jenny Fielding of Everywhere Ventures. Really great to have you back on the show. We thank you. Go get busy with some of your breakfasts and dinners, it would seem. Ed? Yeah, busy week out in New York City. Coming up here on the show, today's VC Spotlight, we're going to talk all things fintech, as we were just discussing. The CEO of Coterie, Ethan Agarwal, coming up next. This is Bloomberg Technology. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop. 
Customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. today's VC Spotlight, we're going to take a look at the Coterie, a fintech company with $500 million assets under management. It helps individual investors manage their investments in alternatives like venture capital funds, but also private equity and more. And as of today, they also offer performance data, capital call payments and tax reporting services. CEO Ethan Agarwal joins us here in San Francisco. That was the origin, right? Allowing individuals to write smaller checks, get in on those rounds that you've never been able to get in on. Exactly. So if you take a step back, like, why do we invest in the first place? We have a vision for the future. We think the future can be better than today. We don't want to save. We want to invest. We think investors are optimists, savers are pessimists. And so what we started to do is say, let's democratize access to an asset class that has been previously limited to really large pension plans or really large endowments. Let's make that available to an average retail investor. That's what we started on. That's what we focused on. In the last 24 months, we've seen that proliferate. There's a lot of different companies that are offering access. What we realized, though, when we got really deep into it is that it's actually the tooling that is completely broken. So as an individual investor, it's basically impossible to manage your capital calls, your performance reporting, your tax documents. And if you're an individual investor in multiple funds logging into multiple portals, it's an absolute disaster. But what does an individual investor look like? Private equity aside, which has kind of been hurt by rates, everyone's kind of clamoring for the private investor as an LP, high net worth individual. Who are you talking about here? The everyday person or the multi-millionaire? Yeah, we're talking about accredited investors and above. So the SEC defines that as a million dollars of net worth or $200,000 of income. And what's beautiful about this is the demand is coming on both sides. So not only are individual investors looking to allocate more capital to alternative asset classes, the funds themselves are looking for more retail investors. 
So if you look at KKR, they said they expect 40% of their subsequent capital raises to come from individuals. Same with Carlyle, same with Blackstone, same with TPG. Mm. And so the funds are looking for a match on the retail side, but our view is that the products, the tools, the solutions need to be dramatically improved in order for retail investors to be able to invest in these uh, alternative asset classes. So you're talking to individual investors. You're also talking, though, to GPs and, indeed, the administrators of the funds. What are you hearing from them? How quickly are they onboarding with you? Uh, so far, very quickly. Uh, it's incredible the GPs, you know, the, the LPs, like I, I'm an LP in five different funds, but I have a full-time day job. People who are GPs in funds, they have their entire net worth tied up in the carry of their own fund. And they have no idea what is that fund marked at? What are the significant companies? What are the marks of those individual companies? And these are people that are saving for their, you know, kids' college tuition in the future, but don't know what those portfolios look like. And so what we did is we built a product that helps GPs that helps LPs understand what exactly they're exposed to, what are their MOICs, and helps them look at analysis that they have never seen before when they were just downloading a PDF or a capital account statement from an antiquated portal. You have raised money, of course, yourself, not only managing the money of others. How is, you know, your own business been going in this, what has been a more difficult environment? Have you been having to focus on ensuring that your revenue positive, profitability a focus? And indeed, are you looking to raise more money? Uh, we have managed quite well. I mean, you look, this is my second time around, so uh, and we have a team of exceptional founder co-founders I have and investors, so we have lots of runway. Um, you know, the company's been performing very well. My view on raising capital is raise as much as you can whenever you can, but in the market today, it just doesn't make sense. So when the market warms up a little bit, you know, obviously with the tenure at 4.7, where are we going to get VC dollars from that are not obscenely expensive, right? So our view is perform really well, the market will warm up, and then we'll go raise capital opportunistically. You never want to raise capital when you need to. You raise it when you want to. And right now, we neither need to nor want to. Ethan, what is it that the Coterie has, technologically speaking, beyond a database? Are you a tech company? We are only a tech company. How so? Um, we don't employ advisors, for example. Uh, we don't employ anybody who is not a software engineer. Um, uh, the advisory model, in even in fintech, in new wealth tech, doesn't really work because people are not looking for a commission-based structure or even an AUM-based structure. What you'll find with a lot of wealth advisors or even some of the larger folks, you saw Goldman reported earnings this morning, what they're saying is, we are going to try to get you to give us your alternative as a management so that we can charge you 50 bips on it. But there's no need to charge 50 bips on something where you're paying capital calls and reporting on PDFs. That's why our payment structure is fixed. We charge a fixed $100 per year per fund, regardless of how big the structure is. So the way that we can do that is by having software, right? If we had people behind this, it would be incredibly expensive, and there's no way that we could deliver that product. The only way we can do that with the significant margins that we have is through software. I like it. The Coterie CEO talking how much they are indeed tech. Ethan Agwell, thanks so much for your time today. We appreciate it.
Swedish electric truck company Volta Trucks is planning to file for bankruptcy following a breakdown in its supply chain, the company said. The decision comes roughly two months after Volta's battery supplier Proterra failed, causing the truck maker to fall short of its production targets. Bring in Bloomberg New Energy Finance analyst Mani Yang for more out of London. And Mani, simple story, supply chain broke down, Volta can't go into production. How difficult is it in your assessment to quickly pivot to a new battery supplier? Um, I think it really depends if the company has any existing relationships. Of course, a lot is uncertain at the moment. I guess we see that battery costs are a major factor in the high upfront cost of electric trucks, which is kind of um, the major factor deterring wider adoption at present because TCO costs are lower for trucks. But in terms of batteries, we kind of see um, two major segues globally. Uh, For example, um, a a lot of the market source from Chinese battery makers that typically do cheaper LFP batteries, whereas um, another part of the market source is from Korean battery makers doing um, NCM and NCA, which is higher in energy density, but also higher in cost. So previously, um, yeah, Volta was supplying from Proterra, which was sourcing from Samsung with NCM and NCA chemistry, but we're seeing more companies in the market, for example, gravitate towards LFP in order to reduce costs. Fascinating supply chain story. We thank you so much. Bloomberg New Energy Finance Analyst Mainy Yang staying late for us in London. We really appreciate it. Meanwhile, we're going to do a bit of a hard pivot, but I guess there is certainly AI within EV and self-driving trucks. So let's do it. AI next. Baidu's founder, Robin Lee, declaring his company's large language model was finally caught up with OpenAI's advanced GPT-4. In fact, he's claiming that the lead in his country's race to develop AI that can rival the United States. Let's bring in our resident expert, Rachel Metz, for more. And what sort of data what proof points, what show and tell is Robin using to prove this? Well, they did a presentation live, and that's often a good test of these systems, but because they're planning in advance what they're going to do in these tests, that can make it a little bit hard to tell exactly how well it works, right? Unless something goes horribly wrong, um, then you would know it's not working well. But one thing that I think is super interesting about this is uh, you have so many of these large language models and chatbots that are trained on so much of the internet that is written in English. Mm. And it's really interesting to see companies working on models that are trained more and meant more for non-English speaking markets. That's something that we're starting to see increasingly. And I think it'll be very interesting to watch uh, and see how people are using this and how well they're finding it works for all kinds of things. How much consumer enthusiasm has there been for these, well, in your hand, viral chatbots. I mean, what, there's more than 180 million or something using ChatGPT in the US. What are the likes and demands for Ernie, for example? I mean, I think that it's something that people want to use for a range of things. And some of it kind of reminds me of the early days of the App Store uh, with the iPhone, for instance, or the early days of the of Android phones and apps where you're not entirely sure what you're going to do with it, but you'll probably figure out some interesting things that might not have even been what was expected. One of the interesting and cool things about putting these onto phones is that it encourages people to use them in more contexts where you might not be in front of a computer like a, like a laptop or 
even an iPad. Um, you, like when you're driving, for instance, or if you're in the, in the kitchen making some food. Uh, it's worth noting that Baidu is down significantly in the session, 4%, but that's largely to do with the expanded U.S. chip technology export curves, which ultimately have the goal of, of blocking access to technology related to AI. What Lee said was that Ernie is not inferior to GPT-4 from OpenAI. Okay, what is it that GPT-4 can do if we're to compare them? If we're to compare them, I mean, I mean that's part of what's really fascinating here is that OpenAI keeps elevating GPT-4, um, or sorry, keeps elevating ChatGPT. I mean, it's gained capabilities that they had announced previously, but you know they were they hadn't been laid out initially. Um, like you can now give it an image and say describe what's in this image. Uh, things like that could be really helpful for a range of uses, from helping people uh, with with visual disabilities to helping you pick out an outfit. So if they can do something like that with ErnieBot, that would be that could be potentially useful. What I'm not sure about, though, is there are also lots of problems with ChatGPT, and it's also hard to know when it's telling the truth, so to speak, how often it's making things up. So it remains to be seen how accurate ErnieBot is, and I guess we're just going to have to wait. Yep. ChatGPT is a wardrobe assistant. Interesting use case. Bloomberg's Rachel Metz. Thank you very much, Kara. No end of applications. Not doing yours yet, though, Ed. Meanwhile, that does it yep. for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. Don't forget to check out the podcast. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Those of you that tune in, we're on Apple, Spotify, and also, of course, all the Bloomberg platforms. Also, check out the show on YouTube. Watch it back. A lot of information in there from what's a busy news kind of day from New York City and San Francisco. This is Bloomberg Technology. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.